0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would. Class number one in Isaiah. The Old Testament book of Isaiah. Pretty simple to find. It is the largest and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, and it comes first in the list of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. You pretty much aim for the last half of your Old Testament. The verses uh, you can't miss are Psalms and Isaiah, I think. They're the the biggest ones back there. Isaiah chapter 1. It's a study that's been a long time coming, and I'm eager to get into it. I expect... uh, Well, my thoughts are that we're going to cover chapter 1 today, and we're going to cover chapter 2 next week, and chapter 3 the week after that. And we're going to teach 66 chapters in 66 weeks. And I'm only a little bit doubtful that it's possible, but with God all things are possible. Early on, if you take a sneak peek over, if we do fall behind, chapter 4 is going to bail us out, because um, chapter 4 only has 6 verses. (laughs) All right? So, that's kind of my... uh, That's my escape hatch, if, in fact, the first three chapters go longer than than we think. But the point is, we have an early hour Sunday morning, we have a midweek service Wednesday night, and in those sessions we teach to the depth of Scripture. Uh, The goal in this hour is to teach to the breadth of Scripture or to the height of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 3 speaks of length and width and height and depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasseth understanding. And there are dimensions of the Word of God. And so uh, it became my practice a few years ago to kind of give different classes a different flavor, or a different style, a different type of teaching. And this is the hour where we do the survey, we do the breadth of Scripture, the, the height, as it were. And so In the next 66 weeks, I hope that we have the overview for this book. I hope we have an appreciation for this book, an understanding of it, clearly, at least within the limits of what you can do in an overview, and then maybe a hunger to go back and take the next 20 years, 30 years, to handle 66 chapters whereby the whole Bible is taught. You know there's 66 books in the Bible? You know there's 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah? You know that uh, there's 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 books in the New Testament? You know the 66 chapters of Isaiah are broken down into the first 39 chapters and then starting in chapter 40 you have comfort, oh comfort. And it's marvelous the way that the first 39 chapters speak of righteousness and judgment and wrath but then the final 27 chapters speak of comfort and encouragement and the millennial glory of what's to come. So really the book of Isaiah gives us a snapshot for the entire Bible. The entire Bible is encapsulated in this book. And so... uh, You're here on the ground floor. You're here for class number one. And uh, don't miss a Sunday for the next 66 because uh, this book is going to be powerful. This book is going to be a blessing for the congregation. All right, before we get started, let's bow our heads in humility before the Father. Let's humble ourselves so that he might teach us from his truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do rejoice over your faithfulness. We thank you, Father, for your servant Isaiah, his very name, which means that salvation is of you. Salvation is of Yahweh. Father, uh, we are those who testify to that, that we cannot save ourselves, but salvation is of you. And Father, I pray that as we humble ourselves before your truth, that this book study would be a blessing, would be an abundant blessing for us, Father, to work our way through uh, this uh, amazing book, to be blessed by Isaiah and his life and his ministry, but most of all his message. And no other book other than outside of Psalms is quoted as often as is Isaiah in the New Testament. So much of what we think is New Testament goes back to Isaiah. And I pray that through the process of this series that we would be equipped to, uh, to be blessed by this study and through this study to become evangelists to the Jewish people. Father, so much uh, of this book is powerful to, uh, to the Jewish people in terms of the uh, the report that we're going to get into in the, in the later chapters. So bless this study. Use it for your good pleasure. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Isaiah chapter 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings, of Judah. Now, a couple of items, too, before we get started. If you uh, picked up a church bulletin, then the back cover of your church bulletin has some notes in there. Uh, They are not the notes I'm teaching from, however. These are the notes that we went through in 2002 when we did the Through the Bible notebook. And in uh, teaching Through the Bible, I think we taught Isaiah over the span of about three weeks. And uh, in three, I think three or maybe four, no, three weeks uh, of different ABC readers uh, or different uh, uh, through the Bible handouts uh, all sixty six chapters of Isaiah were provided, and so we 're going to be publishing those chapter summaries in each Sunday bulletin. You can take those with you, and uh, you 'll have the chapter summaries week by week from the through the Bible notebook and if you want one this morning, like i say you won 't necessarily need it, but get one before you leave. get one before you leave because these are not the notes i 'm going to uh, you 're going to see on the slide, and these are not the notes i 'm going to be teaching from. In this series. Also, we made some copies of some timelines, and those could be handy as well. You won't need it necessarily this morning, but uh, if you want to hand them out, that's fine. You can hand them out. Um, Al has them, and Doug has them. They're good to keep in mind, and they're good to keep in mind for the first point that we're going to look at on the slide now. And that is the fact that administrations come and go, but faithful communicators of the Word of God serve the Lord in season and out of season. Administrations come and go. And as you read your way through Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, you realize this was a ministry that spanned a long period of time, Uh, depending especially the length of time that Uzziah was king. All right? But Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, four administrations in the kingdom of Judah, four kings that, that came and went, that were lifted up to the throne and were cast down from their throne. All right? Four kings came and went, but Isaiah stayed faithful in his ministry. And this is something that we can be thankful for. This is something that we can rest in, in uh, the outworking of our faith. Uh, Presidents come and go, right? Governors come and go. But the word of God stands forever. And the Word of God will sustain us in our marriages, in our families, from generation to generation. We can rest confidently and be assured of that. What you have there is a handout. It comes from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. If, uh, if you have that commentary uh, in your library or in your Logos software, uh, then you will find that chart in there as well. It's a good timetable. It's a good blending of the prophets and the kings. All right. And on the left, you've got the tribe of Judah. On the right, you've got the kingdom of of Israel. Remember, they were a divided kingdom after Solomon. They were a divided kingdom. Ten of the tribes that were in the north, they became the northern kingdom of Israel and two tribes to the south that became the southern kingdom of Judah. And that handout is a remarkable scorecard that would allow you to kind of chart where were the prophets, who were the kings they, they served, uh, what what's the time frame for, uh, for that. It's also one that I agree with, by the way, because it holds to an early Joel, it holds to an early Obadiah. Uh, not every chronology uh, agrees with the early Obadiah or the early Joel view. That diagram does, and so it's, it's a good diagram. My one quibble, my one... Um, displeasure with that chart is that it is not very well lined up left and right. So you want to be careful with that. The, the left and right are not mirrored very well at all, okay? And so when you look down to the bottom of that right-hand column, the last king there, Hosea, and you look at the years there that that last king served, and you go to the left, you actually got to kind of go up quite a bit to find the parallel kingdom, to find the reign of Ahaz, uh, it's up quite a bit. So that's my only quibble with that chart is that I wish that the right-hand column would be better um, sequenced with the left-hand column, at least keeping the kings, uh, the the contemporaneous kings side by side. So there's a volunteer project if someone wants to replicate that and and line it up better. Um, that would be that would be a fruitful exercise. But here's the point of study. It's really Seven things I want to hit you with in chapter one, and to try to do so by the end of the hour, we'll see if the Lord lets that happen. But here's the first one. Administrations come and administrations go, all right? And some are wicked, and some are righteous, and some are a little little bit of a blend, all right? Do you know your uh, kings? Do you know the difference between an Uzziah and a Jotham, or an Ahaz or Hezekiah? Can you tell me whether they were good kings or wicked kings, or somewhere in the middle? All right. In the southern kingdom of Judah, it is a legitimate question. In the northern kingdom, it's easy because they were all wicked kings. But in the southern kingdom of Judah, it's a little bit more difficult that they were all Davidic. They were all direct line descendants of David, but some of them were, were wicked kings. And others uh, started off well, but they were judged by the end of their lives. For example, um, if a king ends up as a, as a, uh, as a leper, and spends the rest of his days in seclusion because of his leprosy, that's not a good thing, all right? But it does allow for a better king. It allows for his son to step into office and to begin to serve. And uh, some of that is what we deal with during this time of Israel's history. Another benefit I think that Isaiah is going to be for us is that Isaiah serves in a very unique period of Old Testament history that we're not as familiar with. I think we're a lot more solid, say, from Genesis to David. We're a lot more solid from Adam to David, from creation to about David and Solomon, right, to about 1,000 B.C. And then we get a little sketchy in the years after that. We get a little sketchy. Once Solomon dies, uh, when the, the the kingdom becomes divided, we are not as familiar with that portion of Old Testament history, and that's exactly where Isaiah is. In fact, Isaiah watches the northern kingdom swept away and then has to encourage the southern kingdom that uh, that God's going to preserve them. That's uh, what he did for all that time, serving King Hezekiah. All right. Now, a uh, parallel text to Isaiah 1-1 would be Hosea 1-1. Grab that real quickly here. After we get past uh, De- uh, Ezekiel and Daniel, you get to Hosea. Notice, the word of the Lord, which came to Hosea, the son of Beeri during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So we find that he's contemporaneous with Hosea. Isaiah was ministering to the south. Hosea was ministering to the north. Hosea had to give the message of rebuke as the northern kingdom is swept away. Isaiah gets to give the message of encouragement that the southern kingdom is going to be preserved. The southern kingdom has to learn from the example of the northern kingdom. And of course, 2 Timothy 4.2 is preached the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come that men will not endure sound teaching, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will turn aside. And we understand that we have the blessings we have to stick with truth. Administrations come, administrations go, but faithful communicators of the word of God will serve in season and out of season Now Uzziah reigned 52 years, and if you want more background on that, here's your homework for the coming week. Uh, And I think it's valuable. I think it'd be very valuable to to get the sense of Israel's history for the next 66 weeks in the book of of, uh, Isaiah. Jotham reigned for 16 years, but you'll notice some overlap there. You'll notice that if he gets started in uh, 750, that uh, some of that period of time was an overlap with his father. Uh, because Uzziah is not dead yet, not until 739. Ahaz reigned 16 years. Again, there's a little bit of overlap, 735 to 715. And then finally, Hezekiah, 29 years, from 715 to 686. And far more so than the actual years or the length, don't think that the length indicates that they were better and so forth. In some cases, the worst king of all reigned the longest. That was King Manasseh, okay? who's not even on this list. He's the son of Hezekiah. But uh, Manasseh reigns the longest. So I don't think that length necessarily correlates to godliness. But one thing that does jump out at you is you've got seven verses for uh, Uzziah. You've got seven verses for Jotham. Uh, you've got 20 verses for Ahaz. So the actual narrative of Scripture is longer for Ahaz than the narrative of Scripture is for either Uzziah or for Jotham. But the narrative of Scripture for Hezekiah is three complete chapters. It's chapter eighteen, chapter nineteen, chapter twenty. You've got three full chapters dealing with Hezekiah in Second Kings. Uh, chapter 18, Second Kings chapter 19, and Second Kings chapter 20. So from 18.1 to 20.21, you've got the block of Second Kings that addresses King Hezekiah, all right? And those three chapters are going to be largely uh, parallel to our study in chapters 36, 37, 38, and 39, all right? There's a significant block of the book of Isaiah, the prophecy Isaiah, that is going to parallel with Second Kings. And some folks are even convinced that Isaiah wrote them both. All right. And uh, as far as that goes, um, it's not really a bad tradition as far as traditions go. All right. This is the period of the Old Testament that we're dealing with. And if it's one that we are not familiar with, then I would encourage each one of us to read those portions of Second Kings, to get familiar with them, and see if you're struck the same way I was, that uh, there seemed to be a whole lot of discouragement in the culture. There seem to be a whole lot of things aren't the way they used to be, all right? And you're going to realize, you know what? Yeah, it used to be better, and we're under judgment now because we have departed from our Lord. And uh, if you get that same sense in reading through those chapters, then uh, you'll come back to this chapter in Isaiah one, and you'll realize that's really what the last half of the chapter is all about. Uh, From verses uh, 21 through the end of the chapter, it's all about where you've fallen from. It's all about what you used to be and where you are now. And uh, boy, it's a good thing. The Lord is faithful (laughs) because you're not. That's the thing. You and I are not faithful, but if we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. And the encouragement of Isaiah chapter 1 should be a a huge blessing for each of us. All right. So that's the first out of the seven things I want to hit you with out of this chapter. Administrations come and go, but faithful communicators of the Word of God serve the Lord in season and out of season. Secondly, heaven and earth bear witness Heaven and earth bear witness. It's a pretty big audience, (laughs) right? As it says in verse 2, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth. For the Lord speaks, Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. All right? The, The tragedy of raising sons and then watching adult sons not walking in a manner consistent with how they've been raised. All right, watching adult sons that have departed from the um, pattern of their, of their upbringing. And this is what Yahweh has to deal with, because he has raised Israel as a nation from her infancy to her adulthood. And now he's watching the rebellion. Heaven and earth bear witness. I love this. I love the reminder that that our lives are a part of a much larger issue, the angelic conflict that the Bible describes, wherein which angelity and humanity are both components for the glory of Jesus Christ. Heaven and earth bear witness. Everything we do is being witnessed. Everything we do is being observed by the angels. Everything we do and how we conduct our marriage, how we raise our family, how we live our Christian walk. And so the prophets can utter such things. Heaven and earth bear witness. This is uh, quite reminiscent of Moses in his final song. In uh, Deuteronomy 32, if you're familiar with how Moses ended his life, if you're familiar with his final composition before he dies and, and Joshua has to take Israel into the promised land, Moses composes a song. Moses composes. I like that. He composes a song. All right? The song of Moses is... Deuteronomy 32. And in this, he begins it with, Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. So Isaiah begins his written message after the pattern of Moses' final song. And in many respects, when the Jewish people esteem their prophets, Moses is the the champion. He's the pinnacle of all their prophets. They worship Moses. To this day, they revere Moses. They don't worship, but they revere Moses. He's the lawgiver. But Isaiah stands on par with Moses as one of the greatest of the prophets. All right, it's really undeniable the greatness of their prophet Isaiah, and I find it uh, a glorious thing. In any event, we have here uh, heaven and earth that are being called to witness in Deuteronomy thirty-two, one, uh, verse five. In the lamentation here, uh, they have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because of their defect but are a perverse and crooked generation. They have acted corruptly. They are not his children. <laughs> and if you've been a parent, you understand this. When, when the wife comes in and says, let me tell you what your son has done, then one of the parents has disowned the child. And, uh, or it goes the other way. The husband tells his wife what her daughter has done. Then uh, we see how that works. And here's Moses saying, you're not God's children. You're supposed to be, but you've rejected him. We'll see similar language in uh, Isaiah chapter 1. Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your Father who has bought you? He has made you, he has established you, and this is how you pay him back. All right. There it is. I mean, that's hard language. That's absolutely hard language. I might have a similar story to tell, but I don't have to now because she's in heaven and there's no more witnesses on this earth. But different rebukes that a mother can pass on to her rebellious son, all right, in language quite comparable to Deuteronomy. Interestingly enough, Jeremiah follows the same pattern. These two book studies, we're going to do Isaiah in 66 weeks, we're going to do Jeremiah in 52 weeks. And I expect that much of what we address in the Isaiah Isaiah series, I'm simply going to tell you, hey, preview of coming attractions because this is what Jeremiah has to deal with. The same issues. Only whereas Isaiah could address these issues and promise them uh, salvation, Jeremiah has to address these issues and promise them destruction. Isaiah, the weeping prophet, is the prophet who is in Jerusalem when Jerusalem falls. So Jeremiah will likewise compare Judah to sub-animal ignorance. Jeremiah will likewise compare Judah to sub-animal ignorance. Returning back to these verses here in Isaiah chapter 1. Um, <laughs> Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Right? Even the uh, the ox and the donkey, they know their creator. But you guys, you guys, let me tell you how stupid you guys are. All right? It's like the, the the I don't know, is this... What did I learn this? I, you talk about somebody and they said that they don't have the common sense that God gave a billy goat. You ever heard that phrase before? Did I get that here? Is that a Texas expression? Maybe I learned that in Alabama. Somewhere in my past, I came across an expression that this person was such a knucklehead that they don't have the common sense God gave a billy goat. And I've, that's, that's, I've never forgotten that. That's always stuck with me. And it, I think it comes out of Scripture. I think it comes out of here. And it comes out of Jeremiah, the concept You know what? An ox knows me. A donkey knows me. Why aren't you that smart? What's wrong with you? But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Here's why. It's because they're in sin. A sinful nation. A people weighed down with iniquity. There is damage you do to your soul the longer you stay in sin. And the damage that's done includes your ignorance of God. It includes, he's far from your thinking, he's far from your eyes, you're so wrapped up in your sin that you have become sub-animal in the consequences. Jeremiah 4.22 and Jeremiah 8.7. If this is a a realm of application and you've got uh, folks you're praying for that have involved in realms of sin, this may become a goad to improve our prayer life. Jeremiah 4.22 For my people are foolish, they know me not. They are stupid children, they have no understanding. They are shrewd to do evil, but to do good they do not know. They have become absolutely clever in the evil that they do. They're even very inventive in finding new ways to do the evil. Shrewd to do evil, but to do good they do not know. They're absolutely stupid in the things of the Lord. We're commanded to be the opposite—to be shrewd as serpents, and harmless as doves. We're commanded to be um, serving Him in that capacity. Likewise, Jeremiah eight seven. More name calling. Even the uh, even the stork in the sky knows her seasons. You know, why do birds know? I mean, do they have calendars? How do they know to fly south for the winter? All right. Even the stork in the sky knows her seasons, and the turtle dove and the swift and the thrush observe the time of their migration. But my people do not know the ordinance of the Lord. So we have similarities here. I think we have similarities that go back to Moses and how he composed his song when he gave his farewell address to the nation of Israel and then he dies and hands off the nation of, to Joshua. I think that that pattern of Deuteronomy 32, it gets replicated by Isaiah and his prophecy. It gets replicated by Jeremiah and his prophecy. Calling heaven and earth to witness denouncing Judah in her sub-animal ignorance. Sub-animal ignorance. Likewise, Jeremiah highlights Judah's failure to respond to the father's chastisement. Failure to respond to the father's chastisement. We have this in Isaiah 5. I didn't list the Isaiah references there. I should have. The uh, sub-animal ignorance in Isaiah is Isaiah 1, 3, and 4. And then the uh, failure to respond to the father's chastisement. We've got uh, verses 5 and 6 here in Isaiah 1. Where will you be stricken again? Where will you be stricken again? All right, The father is disciplining his son. The father has applied the rod of discipline the Proverbs speaks of. The, ch- the son who is disobedient has been disciplined and it hasn't done anything. The son has only hardened his heart. He's only stiffened in his anger. He's become defiant, I'll show you, in his rejection of the discipline. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, and raw wounds not pressed out or the bandage, nor softened with oil. In other words, God the Father is saying, I've run out of places to spank you. <laughs> where, where is there left? From the soul to your head, there is nothing left that has not been disciplined. Where do you want the next one to fall? I've hit everything. Okay? That's, a, that's an extraordinary statement. That is an extraordinary statement. Jeremiah will likewise highlight Judah's failure to respond you know, if you are under divine discipline, there's a reason why, and I encourage you to respond sooner rather than later. To repent, to come out of the reversionism now. Today would be great. Yesterday would have been better. All right, tomorrow is maybe too late. All right, when it comes to the sin unto death and it comes to the father giving you over or giving a nation over to national destruction. Jeremiah 230 In vain I have struck your sons. They accepted no chastening. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. So there was the discipline, and it didn't achieve anything. It didn't achieve what the Father intended it to achieve. Chapter 5 and verse 3 of Jeremiah O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth. You have smitten them, but they did not weaken. You have consumed them, but they refuse to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. They have refused to repent. You know, and when it reaches that point and you realize, okay, discipline's not doing anything, well, time for the next step then, because this, this obviously isn't cutting it. All right? The day mom figured out her spankings didn't hurt anymore was the last day she ever spanked me. And I was in dad's hands after that, okay? Anyway, they actually stopped hurting sometime prior to that. It just I didn't let on right away until it finally my faking kind of went over the top, and she finally caught on to the fact that her spankings hadn't hurt for, for a little while anyway. But that was it. I'm now in dad's hands after that, okay? But what happens when even dad's hands can't handle it? Well, then you take it to the elders in the city gates. What happens with a rebellious child, and even beyond parental discipline? The Old Testament has a procedure for that. All right? And all of this is to mimic, all of this is to illustrate the principles of divine chastisement for a nation. What happens when America doesn't listen to the wake-up call? How long have we been in drought? How long have we been under inflation and other uh, economic difficulties? When are we going to get serious about our walk before the Lord? That's really the impact of Isaiah and Jeremiah. I believe the reason the Lord has impelled me to teach Isaiah tough times but salvation promised or Jeremiah tough times and destruction is here is because our nation is going one of those two directions. And I I believe that our congregation better get the doctrine in a hurry to handle what it is that we have in front of us. All right, third thing. So heaven and earth bear witness. Heaven and earth bear witness. When God's hand of dealing is is upon a nation, we need to pay attention because the angels are. A faithful remnant is preserved by the grace and faithfulness of God alone. A faithful remnant is preserved by the grace and faithfulness of God alone. God preserves a remnant. We saw this in Romans 9. We saw this when we understand that the church does not replace Israel. That there is, even at this present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Romans 9.22 There is a remnant. And that remnant is not a remnant because they deserve to be a remnant. That remnant is a remnant because of the grace of God. Because of the faithfulness of God. It is only because he's faithful that I can reflect his faithfulness in my own faithfulness. It's only because that he's a God of grace that I can reflect his grace if I continue in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. A faithful remnant is preserved by the grace and faithfulness of God alone. Verses seven through nine here, there is a remnant preserved in Israel. Your land is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. People that are not entitled to the fruit of your land are reaping the fruit of your land. Well, why are they here? Why is God allowing them to do this? Because your land is under under discipline. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. And, uh, and all you can do is just sit there in your hut and watch as the plunderers take your, take your produce away. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. If we have a remnant, it's only because God is a God of grace. It's because He has left us these survivors. If God was not a God of grace... If God does not leave us these few survivors, then we won't have the preserving benefit that we have of salt and light in our community. All right, Sodom and Gomorrah could have been spared had there been ten righteous. All right, And there were not. Now there was a remnant in Israel. And as they watched, the northern kingdom swept away. As, as the Assyrians sweep away those ten northern tribes, the two southern tribes then need the doctrine for their stability. And they're going to realize that if they, if they repent, if they turn to the Lord, if they humble themselves before the Lord, that, that that deliverance will come, that they will be preserved. And even a wicked king like Ahaz is going to be invited to ask for a sign. Ask for a sign so that you will have confidence that you're going to be rescued from those, from those Assyrians. Okay? Stay tuned for chapter 7. So there is a faithful remnant There is a faithful remnant. But if you happen to be that remnant, don't be uh don't brag about it. All right. Um, he vindicates the holiness of his own name. The reason why he preserves a remnant is because he is validating himself. He's validating his promises. He's faithful to his covenants. He's faithful to his unconditional promises. All right? Like I say, we're we're drinking from a fire hose in this series. I'm trying to get across seven big themes, and those big themes are on the top of every slide. What comes underneath those big themes are additional testimonies or additional support, biblical basis and cross-references and and other passages that address things. But the big idea of each of these segments is, of the chapter is going to be printed at the top of that slide in the kind of the lighter shaded green background. But a faithful remnant is preserved by the grace and faithfulness of God alone. Do we have a faithful remnant in America? Is there a faithful remnant in our land today? And can we uh, expect that perhaps God in his grace and faithfulness will allow for a faithful remnant in our land in the next generation? Are we training up a godly seed? Are we raising up children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord? Because the hope for our nation is not political. It's not the ballot box, it's not economic, it's not military, it's spiritual. If, in fact, brothers and sisters are serious about glorifying Jesus Christ. God vindicates the holiness of his own name in Ezekiel 36. God vindicates the holiness of His own name. It's not for your sake that He's preserved a remnant. It's not for your sake that He's going to bring you back. (laughs) You know? These themes, think about it. Isaiah, in the 7th century, encouraging them to repent because God will save you. God will preserve you. Jeremiah, telling them to repent and watching the city fall. Then Daniel and Ezekiel, captives, living in Babylon, living outside of the land of promise, living during the time of the captivity. And then coming back into their land, Zechariah, Malachi, the closing prophets of the Old Testament. Once they have returned to their land, when they build a new temple, um, again, these, these, the message of the prophets here is, I think, uh, powerful for us today. So here's Ezekiel. They've been swept away. They uh, they rejected Isaiah's message. They rejected Jeremiah's message. They went into captivity. But here's Ezekiel preaching in Babylon saying, we're going back. We're going back. God will be faithful. He will take us back. And yet it's not for our sake. Exodus 36, 22, he says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. (laughs) Okay? You were a bunch of stiff-necked, rebellious, sub-animal rebels, and I sent you into captivity. And what have you done in that captivity? You continue to testify to that rebellion in your captivity. Daniel has a national confession confession for Israel, because 70 years later they still hadn't repented. So he says, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. All the way, this whole context here, all the way down to verse 32. I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. They're going to have to learn, and they're going to have to learn the the hard way. Actually, it's going to take the tribulation in the end times to do it the fullness of their shame will come under Antichrist uh, desolations of the the future tribulation. God vindicates the holiness of his own name. But the big idea, again, as I look at verses 7 through 9, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom, we would be like Gomorrah. Understand, our nation is in the hands of the Lord. And if he wasn't as gracious and merciful as he is, we'd have been destroyed a long time ago. Thank God that he's slow to anger. Thank God that he's merciful. You know, I lived in Europe for two years. I saw empty church after empty church after empty church. They're typically museums. They're not functioning churches. Europe is fully post-Christian. More and more of them are being converted to mosques anyway. All right. It is only by the grace of God that America has not reached that post-Christian status that, that Europe has reached. Okay, So let's be thankful for the grace of God in preserving the remnant that we have to this day. All right, here's the biggest thing of Isaiah chapter 1. First thing I think of when I think of Isaiah chapter 1, if I wanted to preach a Sunday sermon on Isaiah chapter 1, I would go right here. I would go to verses 10 through 15. I would go to the Lord's rebuke where he says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you peoples of Gomorrah. The message of verses 10-15 through is, you stink. Your worship stinks. Your sacrifices stink. So quit it. I'm sick of it. God the Father, the Creator God of the universe, says He is sick and tired. So you need to stop it now. When God is not well pleased by a sweet aroma, he is disgusted by our nasty stench. And the saddest thing of all is this this is lived out in churches across the world today. Countless people are assembling today with a formal religion, with a formal outward show of godliness. The most religious people you've ever met. Fine, upstanding, moral people, dressed well, clean, in church on a Sunday morning. And God says, you stink. And to me, this gets my attention, because what did verse 9 say? You know, we, good thing he's given us a remnant, or we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Thank God he's given us a remnant. We wouldn't want to be like them. And then what does he say in verse 10? Listen up, Sodom. Listen up, Gamora. (laughs) Do you know how close you are to being them? So this is what he calls them. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. If if God calls those kind of names, that gets your attention. You know, if I start calling names, that gets your attention. If I called you a Benedict Arnold, that would get your attention. And you think, why does the pastor think I'm a traitor? All right. Or if I call you a, Oh, whatever. That would get your attention. What's the meaning of the name? How does the name become a pejorative? So listen up, Sodom. Listen up, Gomorrah. Does that get your attention? supposed to. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? (laughs) You know, well, if God's happy with sacrifices, then we'll just do more. That'll make him extra happy. We'll be extra religious. We're going to give more than the next guy, and that means we're better. No, I'm not impressed by your multiplied sacrifices. I've had enough of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. I'm not pleased with any of this. Your church attendance isn't oppressing me. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? You're tracking mud all through my courts. Did I tell you to do that? Who requires this of you? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Ooh, worthless! Now we're talking. This is we're getting ferocious in this language here. We're talking. Um, you know, you get into worthlessness. You start getting into belial. You start getting into some strong language. Abomination is incense is an abomination to me. This is this is significant. Our culture has lost track of what God calls an abomination. And we will reap the whirlwind for that as, an, as a nation. New moon and Sabbath, a calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. See here's the thing: they maintain this outward show, they maintain this outward ritual as if it matters, as if it can somehow make up for the fact that their attitude is an attitude of sin. I hate your new moon festivals in your appointed feasts. When the God of love says, I hate, that's trouble, right? That's trouble. We don't want to be there as a nation. We don't want to be there in our marriage, in our family. We don't want to be there as individual believers. We don't want to be engaged in the activity God says he hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. This is the absolute polar opposite of where we want to be. We want to cast all our burdens on him because he cares for us. But here's where God's saying, that, that's a burden to me. I want nothing of it. I want nothing of it. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. The omniscient, eternal God of the universe closes. The office is now closed. You get a busy signal on the prayer line. Okay, Not because He cannot hear you, because He does not hear you. He says, I'm not listening to any more of that. You don't mean a thing of it. I'm not, I'm not going to hear that. I'm I'm God says no. He turns his back on that. When God is not well pleased by a sweet aroma, he is disgusted by our nasty stench. He says, I hate it, I'm sick of it, it's worthless, it's an abomination. It stinks. That's the doctrinal translation of Isaiah chapter one. All right. And this, 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 we should be very well aware of all of this. If you have done any kind of study or casual reading, or if you have any kind of background in the Old Testament, a sweet-smelling savor shows up everywhere. A soothing aroma shows up throughout, starting with Noah and getting off the ark and his sacrifices of Genesis chapter 8, going all the way through Exodus and Leviticus. It's everywhere the soothing aroma, the sweet-smelling savor, the fact that the, the uh, whole burnt offering goes up on the altar and arises as a soothing aroma, a sweet-smelling savor in the sense of the uh, altar of incense within the holy place. All right, And just as you know, the metaphor, obviously we can smell it when meat's on the grill. right? It's the best smell in the universe. The best smell in the universe is a dead cow. ah but also a dead cow can be a nasty smelling thing all right if it's not on the grill what if it's just laying there in a ditch okay the same thing can be a marvelous sweet smelling savor or it can be a nasty stench that's the point here in isaiah chapter 1 the soothing aromas they they are presented throughout the old testament and every single one of them is a foreshadowing of christ That Jesus Christ is himself the ultimate fragrance. Ephesians 5.2 This is what Jesus Christ did. And everything that preceded Jesus was simply a preview. But we're commanded to walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. The fulfillment of every sweet-smelling savor in the Old Testament was Jesus Christ on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. He offered Himself to God the Father. God the Father was well-pleased. God the Father was eternally, infinitely satisfied. Now, on the basis of that finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, there is no more animal ritual necessary. The animal ritual is complete. We now walk in the newness of life. We now operate as living sacrifices in Christ. See what the blood of bulls, rams, and goats could not do, Jesus himself did. Once and for all. Once and for all. We too get to now become aromas. And we taught this doctrine in 2 Corinthians that we too are both fragrant and repugnant. But we want to be fragrant and repugnant in the right way. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This will be a, a review for you if you were with us in the 2 Corinthians series. The marvelous doctrine here that says that we are sweet-smelling and stinky at the same time. That we are a fragrance of Christ. And as a fragrance of Christ, we are very sweet-smelling to the Father and we are very sweet-smelling to one another. But to the dying of this world, we are an aroma that they don't care for. the church is both fragrant and repugnant 2 Corinthians 4 or I'm sorry 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 14 through 16 Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place All right the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place We are the fragrance of Christ We serving him in this world and we're a fragrance of Christ. When you're serving the Father, when you're communicating the Father's message, when you're accomplishing the Father's work, when you're reconciling this lost world to Himself, you are doing everything Christ did in His earthly ministry. And you are a fragrance of Christ back to the Father again. He smells you goes, that reminds me of my Son. That is my Son. Alright? Because it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. We are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are the being saved ones saved ones and among those who are the perishing ones to the one it's an aroma from death to death to the other an aroma from life to life and who is adequate for these things see it's an aroma it's the same aroma but to the dying ones it's an aroma of death to death to the being saved ones it's an aroma of life to life we like how we smell as believers, as Christians. But the world is not like how we smell. Because how we smell reminds them of their own death. It reminds them that they don't smell like us. Anyway, if you want more on that, uh, there's classes on the website from Second Corinthians chapter two. How to be sweet smelling. Okay. We are the cause of our own prayer failure. Here's the fourth big idea in this chapter. We are the cause of our own prayer failure. If you ever think that prayer is not working, you might be right. And if you are right, it's not God's fault. All right, There has been a separation that has been affected. There has been a barrier that has been put in place. And God didn't put it there, you did. In your own carnality. We are the cause of prayer failure. We already saw it. In verse 15 here of Isaiah 1, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you, yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Not that I cannot listen. I will not listen. And the reason why? Your hands are covered with blood. Why is it that the laver was the first piece of furniture you came to in the tabernacle? Why did you have to cleanse your hands and cleanse your feet before a Levitical priest could then enter into the holy place? Because to try to serve God with unclean hands was an attack on his own holiness. We are the cause of prayer failure. That's why the imperative comes then to Cleanse yourselves. Wash yourselves in verse 16. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the order and plead for the the widow. Now, don't get confused there. Some people think, well, I need to turn over a new leaf and start doing good things and then God will be happy with me. No, it starts with cleanse yourself. Cleanse yourself. None of the rest of that is going to matter until you cleanse yourself. You've got to have your spiritual priorities lined up first before anything else you do in uh, in your service. We are the cause of prayer failure. Our own carnality provokes separation from God. This thing's going to come back again later in Isaiah. It's going to come back again in Isaiah 59. Your, He says, I'm not listening to you because your hands are covered in blood. All he wants to hear is our confession. All he wants to hear is us to confess our sins so that he can restore us to fellowship so that he can be faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, and James 4 8. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. <laughs> say, well, prayer's not working. Well, it's not God's fault, and it's not God's deficiency. His hand isn't so short that he's helpless to solve your circumstance. His hand is long enough. He can reach you. Nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. It's not that he's hard of hearing. It's not that he didn't hear you in your prayers. It's that he chose not to listen to you in your prayers because you're carnal. Your hands are covered with blood. Your hands are defiled with blood, it says there in verse 3. Your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. You have created the separation. Verse 2 says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. When God saved you, He reconciled you and brought you to Himself. But now your own sins have once again put distance there and put a barrier up between you and God. Does that mean you lost your salvation? Of course not. But what it does mean is that until you get that confessed and dealt with, you just created your own prayer obstacle. You just created your own... uh, your own uh, prayer failure. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. Again, it is so that he does not hear. Not that he cannot hear, he does not hear. He shut his ears down when you went out into those realms of carnality. James 4 8 in the New Testament. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Same impact in the New Testament that we see there in the Old Testament. Our sins, this is quite remarkable, this should not be a surprise to us that sin creates a separation. That's what had happened to Christ on the cross. Our sins imputed to Christ provoked his separation as well. He cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because our sins were imputed to his account. There was a separation. God cannot abide by iniquity. That's why their hypocritical worship in the temple was so abhorrent that inwardly they were wretches, even while they maintained an abundance of earthly sacrifices. They're watching the northern kingdom swept away, so they They multiply their sacrifices as if that's going to impress God. You know, politicians get the same thing. Oh, we have a problem. Let's just throw more money at it. What's that going to solve? All right. Let's just offer more goats. And we won't turn out like the northern kingdom and get swept away. God says, no, I'm sick of it. Psalm 22 uh, 22 quoted by Christ on the cross in Matthew 27, 46 that we are the cause of prayer failure, that God will not listen. The most amazing thing is Jesus cries out on the cross. God cannot listen. God will not listen. Darkness enshrouds him. The wrath is poured out. Jesus accepts the wrath during the, the three hours of darkness on the cross. And then the darkness is lifted. And then Jesus takes back up his life. And the Father listens. It says he was heard because of his piety. He was heard. He had authority to lay down his life. He had authority to take it back up again. And he was heard. And on the cross, the Father was well pleased. And the Father says, well done. What a victory. What a victory. The uh, sixth big thing here, and I recommend this. This is... uh, this is really the main point of this uh, section of chapter 1. Cleansing is imperative for sacrifices to be accepted. Cleansing is imperative for sacrifices to be accepted. As, as, as wrong as they were, as wicked as they were, as, as much as they stunk, the command is wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. It's the simple matter of cleansing. It's a simple matter of confession. 1 John 1, 9. It's a simple matter of being restored to fellowship. It's a simple matter of how God designed spirituality whereby we are restored to fellowship, whereby we are restored to a position whereby we can bear fruit. If you want more on that, we've got the spirituality versus carnality reader. We've got the information uh, on the website about spirituality versus carnality, about being restored to fellowship. I like to teach this doctrine on day one of of a brand new believer's walk. On day one, to make a disciple, you teach them foot washing. You teach them confession. You teach them about how to confess their sins. Say, Okay, now you're saved. Your sins are eternally forgiven. You've had your bath, but you need to learn now how to have the hand and foot washing process. You need to learn how to confess your sins because sometime uh, coming up, you're going to commit another sin. And you can't get saved again, but you do need to have your confession process. You need to learn how to go to the Father in prayer, how to, how to rebound, how to confess your sins, how to name them, how to be restored to fellowship, naming them in agreement with God the Father so that He can cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And it is the only imperative. It's the only way that your sacrifices are going to be acceptable again. Notice, it's not... I think there's some confusion there where people want to add penance on top of confession, and they fail to see that confession is the only restoration of fellowship, and that what follows as an outworking of that is not penance, it's doing good and seeking justice and defending the widow or orphan and pleading for the widow. That's not penance that's being piled on top of confession in order to restore you back into some kind of a, a right standing with the queen of heaven. All right? We don't teach penance in the Bible. It's confession. Confession is what washes us, and confession is what makes us clean. Confession is what allows us then to do anything that gives glory to Jesus Christ, to offer any sacrifice that is to be accepted. Oops. Those are the wrong sub-points. Okay. Um, What that should say... Those are just repeat from the slide before. That's terrible. Um, We have David's example in Psalm 51. Here's your supporting scripture. If you want to learn more about confession and cleansing, read David's repentance in Psalm 51. And then read the New Testament as uh, Jesus illustrates it in John 13 with foot washing. He girds himself with a towel. He starts to wash the disciples' feet. He's teaching them about cleansing. He's teaching them about confession of sin and forgiveness. And then the Apostle John, when he wrote 1 John, 1 John 1, nine, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So what that slide should say is David's illustration of Psalm 51, and then Jesus' illustration of John 13, and the Apostle John's teaching in 1 John 1, nine, That cleansing is imperative. It does you no good to be out of fellowship. It does you no good to be carnal. If you're going to volunteer in the nursery, don't do it in carnality. <laughs> do it in spirituality. Confess your sins, all right? And then as you confess your sin, every diaper is a sweet smelling savor. Every work of service glorifies God the Father. Don't cut the grass if you're out of fellowship, or uh, sweep the crickets, right? Or spray for wasps, or whatever you're doing. If you're going to do a, ser- a work of service as unto the Lord, do it in fellowship. Do it under the filling and control of God the Holy Spirit. I mean, unbelievers can change diapers. It does you no good in carnality to do any of this stuff. Confess your sins, the cleansing requirement. It is imperative for sacrifices to be accepted. Finally, the last half of the chapter, verses 21 to 31. the past is lamented, the present is condemned, but the future is glorious for Zion. Verses 21 through 31 is a snapshot for the rest of the book. All right. How the faithful city has become a harlot. And yet there is glory to come. Zion will be redeemed. It's kind of a neat, uh, there's, there's poetry to this. Um, Isaiah is a, is a marvelous poetic prophecy. His writing is, is 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 just exquisite in so many different ways. But if you think about um, this paragraph, this section from 21 to 31, some people chart it from 24 to 31, but in any event, you've got uh, bad news at the front and the back, bad news, bad news, bad news, but the middle of it, is good news. Okay, like in a chiastic structure. Cuz these middle verses here, I will turn my hand uh, I will restore your judges as at first in verse 26, your counselors as at the beginning. After that you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. I think a faithful city is a whole lot better than a harlot, right? That's how the paragraph began, the faithful city has become a harlot. But no, in God's future, Zion will once again be the faithful city. In fact, by the time we get to Jeremiah, it is so blunt. Yahweh gives Jerusalem a certificate of divorce. Yahweh tells Israel, goodbye, you're out of here. He calls her a harlot, a faithless wife. He hands her the divorce papers and makes her go. But he also prophesies that in the millennial kingdom, he's taking her back. He also prophesies a virginity. How do, you give, how do you make a harlot a virgin again? All right, well, God can. All right, so this is what we deal with. Um, and this is what we can be praying for if we experience it in our own culture. If we have wicked national leaders or righteous national leaders, well, it's going to be a reflection of the spiritual condition of the nation. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Oh, wait a minute. (laughs) I was getting lost in a modern American political commentary there. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. Your whole political structure is out for themselves. Ah, but in the millennial kingdom, I will restore your judges as at first, and your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you will be called the city of righteousness. Second advent of Jesus Christ will be a smelting operation. understand that's why we have a tribulation coming up. Israel has to be smelted. The impurities have to be melted away. All the prophets agree to this. Not just Isaiah. Ezekiel, Zechariah, Malachi, they're all about the fire that's going to hit the dross. Melting the dross away so that the purified gold and purified silver can enter into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And the millennium will be a time of embarrassment. We'll have more to say on this as I'm running out of time, but surely you will be ashamed. In verse 29, surely you will be ashamed. Of the oaks which you have desired, you will be embarrassed at the gardens which you have chosen. For you will be like an oak whose leaf fades away, or as a garden that has no water. The um, shame that Israel has to go through, and for the time period they go through it. There's more about that in Ezekiel 16 and Ezekiel 36. Why is the millennium a thousand years? Why is it not forever? Because God has eternal promises to Israel that will be fulfilled forever. But in the meantime, for that first day, remember a day is as a thousand years, for that first day in glory, Israel has some, uh, some shame to experience. They've got some embarrassment to confess. They've got some hard-earned lessons that they have to teach to the Gentile nations in that thousand year span. And they're going to teach the Gentile nations during that thousand year span. And they're going to do so in their shame and in their embarrassment for the thousand year reign of Christ. Then in the new heavens and new earth, the eternal promises to David will be manifest to the Jewish people. Don't confuse the millennium with eternity future. Don't confuse the millennium with the the thousand years with the thousand generations to come in the new heavens and the new earth. We'll have more to say on that in some upcoming classes as well. But I'm out of time. All right, Lord willing, rapture pending. We have the word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. By the way, Amos is not Amos. Don't, don't fall for that. Okay? They're spelled differently, they're not the same Hebrew name. Amos is not the prophet Amos. All right. Thank you, Father, for this day, for your faithfulness, for your truth, for the book of Isaiah. There is so much meat in this book, Father. Seven big ideas in chapter one, and we could have could have taken a Sunday for each one of them, Father. And yet, uh, not the purpose for this hour. I pray that you would equip each one of us to understand the length and width and breadth and height of Scripture. That you would understand us to, you would allow us to understand the big picture of what the Bible is all about. The big picture for what your program for Israel and the Church are all about. And then beyond that, Father, give us the diligence to understand the depth, the detail. Father, shape our thinking with the full spectrum of Your Word. And I thank You in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.